This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a public television producer and director for such award-winning shows as John McGivern's Main Streets and Around the Corner with John McGivern. She is an Emmy Award for Best Magazine Programming as a Series, and she directs campaigns for Network Health. Coming up is my creative conversation with executive producer for Plum Media, Lois Maurer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hey, Pat. Thank you. The first question is likely to take up the first half hour, and that is what does a producer do? There's days I think I don't know the answer to that, Pat, and I supposedly am one. But let me tell you, when I teach a lot of kids, you know, I talk at schools and stuff, and I always say to them, it's the answers to the questions, what are we doing? How are we going to do it? And all of that is predicated by why. Because if you forget what your mission is, you forget what your objective is, especially in series production, you're going to go awry. So what are we going to do? is literally the content of whatever it is you're producing. It doesn't have to be a television show. It can be a short, it can be a film, but what is it that we're gonna do? That means producers do all the nitty gritty of who's the talent gonna be? Is there gonna be a script? You probably have to write the script yourself too if you're at PBS. Where is it gonna be filmed? What is the crew? Everything from the location down to every word that gets said is the producer's thing. And who's going to be in it? Who are you going to talk to? And then the how is all the technical stuff. A good producer knows how it gets done. I am not a fan of, well, this is what I want and you guys figure out how to get it. I don't tell anyone how to get it. However, I know what they have to do. So for example, I'm not going to come up with an idea that's going to require a six camera shoot in a helicopter. My budget won't allow that. So you have to know how to get what you want too. As a PBS producer, very specifically, you are wearing multiple producing hats. The word producer and why it's so confusing in the marketplace is that in television sitcoms, sometimes writers are elevated to producers in terms of some responsibility and some pay level, but they're not the creative producer that's actively doing all of the how, as you are. That would be a line producer. A line producer is dealing with every line on the budget and how much it gets paid. And an executive producer, let's say in movies, an executive producer might be raising the funds and pulling it all together, but they're not technically the producer that's doing the logistics. In Broadway, there are creative producers who are really doing the lion's share of the work. And there's a lot of people with the name producer 
who have donated a million dollars or more, or not donated, but invested that money. And those are all also producers. And then they have these sub names, like an associate producer, which I always joked is only somebody who's willing to associate with the producer. (laughs) Yes. And we have a co-producer on this podcast. And honestly, he's doing a lot of producing, but the word is so vague. And in all of those other disciplines that I just described, all of those hats in PBS become one person. You are the line producer. You are the creative producer. And you're also wearing a directing hat. So you're taking on a different kind of delegating. And the producer does all that work so the director can have an efficient shoot. True. And so you know what I find? It's so much easier if I'm the director. (laughs) I know everything that I've already put together, right? I know what I want it to look like. I have been accused of being a control freak. But I think in order to do all of this, you kind of have to be. The director part of it is just supernatural to me. And so I prefer to direct everything that I produce. You know how you as a creative get a vision in your head? You're kind of the only one that knows how to get it out. So you have to tell other people, I'm working with a videographer, I'm working with an audio technician, I'm working with lighting people or gaffers and that. It's still, when you look at the monitor, is that what was in your head? And If you're working with a crew that knows you really well, I am lucky. I have been working with the same crew for years. I don't really have to say things out loud anymore. They know exactly. We're all on the same page. (laughs) If you give them a stink eye, they know they better brighten the shot up. Yeah, she doesn't like that. I get that. And then uh, talent is mostly that way. With At least in my experience, my technical crew... I trust them implicitly. They will do their job. I never say to my audio technician, gee, is that sound going to be a problem? She'll tell me if it's a problem. I don't need to ride her. And my videographer this season of John McGammon's Main Streets has so much experience in the business. I rarely look at a monitor. You know what? That's his job. I'm going to let him do it. But I know from a director's standpoint, I know where the camera is. I know the length of the lens. I understand what the shot looks like that I don't always have to look at it. Yeah. Over the years and the wisdom that you develop and those relationships, you begin to create that crew around you, which is supportive, that probably enhances the ideas and takes another step forward. And to get there, it makes you sort of a conductor of an orchestra. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. When the players are really good, all you want to be sure is that the timing is right or that the team is working together. But that comes all on trust. They have to trust you as well. That's a very good point. I think I'd like that in my title now, Pat. Producer, director, conductor. <laughs> good. <laughs> I think I'm going to put that in there. That's good. That's a freebie here from the creativity. When you make the show, podcast. you can make up your titles too, by the way. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm chief creative officer over here. See? Very good. Yes. It does describe what I do because people kind of weren't sure if I was a comedian or if I was a host or if I was a writer or I was, right. all, and the truth is all we do is create content, original yes. content. We tell stories, we do it in different ways. And that's exactly what you do. Yeah. So what I'd love to do, especially for folks who don't know the shows that you are directing and producing, but I'd like to give them a kind of an inside look at the logistics because your show is on the road. Your show Uh takes place in a different city every episode, which means you have to deal with not just location scouting, Mm -hmm. but what's of interest in the city that we're going to talk about. It's a bit of a combination of a travel show and a what's cool to do in various cities. You might be talking about products that are produced or theater that's going on. And 
you have to figure out in every show who are the guests, what are we talking yeah. about, and generally you're amplifying or glorifying that city's profile. Yeah, that's my goal. Our goal is to be all positive all the time and go to these communities that have so much pride in what they do. It's also a personality show. My host, John McGivern, is incredibly talented. And so he, you watch this show because you want to know what he's up to. Because when you watch him, he is your friend. He, the way we shoot the show is I put the camera on my videographer's shoulder, if you will. And if there's an interview with three people, my camera is the third person in the conversation. He's silent, but he watches things back and forth, just like if you were just talking to somebody. And that, honestly, John will look at the camera. It's one of those where he includes you as an audience mm -hmm. in the conversation. So he can really get through that glass. There are very few people that have that ability that I have worked with or that I have even found. It's completely impromptu. So when you talk about what has to happen in the field, I have to set up an environment that the talent can go into and he pulls the story out of the people. I give him background. On John McGammon's Main Street this year, I have four content producers that work with me because it's a lot of research. What has to happen before you even get out there well, first you got to decide where you're going. Okay, so I look at a map and I say I need two cities in Minnesota and Illinois and Indiana and Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin. So I have to find the cities and they're really kind of a, hey, have you ever been there? Hey, John, where do you want to go this season? Hey, Gail and Brian, my other crew. Sometimes just personal. There's not a science to that at all. <laughs> then you start your internet search and you go, okay, does this look like it might be cool? And then you have to get on the ground. This show is 13 episodes long per season, and we only shoot when the weather is nice for many reasons. As a director, you know that snow and cold not only look crappy, truthfully, on television, <laughs> Right. your talent begins to look crappy because he gets crabby. They're freezing. <laughs> your technician's um, fingers aren't working. I'm like, you know what, guys? Why don't we just show everything from May until the end of October? <laughs> Okay. That's really funny, though, because it also is pleasant for the viewer. Even in the worst months when they're watching your show, you're giving them a ray of sunshine. You're showing them the, the foliage in full color. I always say to them, when you see the episode, our season airs starting in January and goes through like the end of April once a week. I always say to the people who are in it, you're going to love watching this in February because it's going to remind you that there is summer <laughs> is coming because <laughs> we live in a cold weather climate where winter is long. I can tell you that my visits to Milwaukee, where you are, there were so many times I came in November or December or January. And I don't know that there wasn't a time I wasn't knee deep in snow. And he's like, well, come back, <laughs> come back in May. Yeah. So we do shoot only in the summer for that very reason. I mean, it's just production is easier. Talent is happier. Towns have their beautiful flowers. They look best, right? Because our goal is to show a town in its most favorable light. You don't sneak in the story of the sewage leak uh, across town or anything? <laughs> Not interested, but thanks for the suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest obstacle in, in all the years you've been doing this? Have you run into, beside maybe some inclement weather, has there been some funny things that you guys encountered? Oh, it seems to happen on every episode, Pat. And here's what it is. We have like a magnet attached to us that says, if you see us on the street, please start your lawnmower, start your clippers, start the fire engines, the ambulance. I mean, we do a lot of towns, small towns as well. And their main streets are usually a highway. 
Oh, I can't change that. I can't change the fact that the semis are coming up and down. You get to the point where we all just have to look at each other and laugh because how does this happen to us all the time? It's kind of a documentary style, I guess, given that it's a man on the street. Completely. We might take stand-ups. Stand-ups are when our host, John, or our co-host, Emmy, speak directly to the camera and tell you something that's interesting or funny about where we are. And so those I can take over and over again until the fire truck stops. Our interviews with anybody that's in a business or on a street or a resident or a city official or the 90-year-old lady who's lived in town making koozies for 55 years, true, they don't stop. I don't want them to have a script. It's just like this, Pat, like you and I are talking now. Make a conversation and John just talks to people. I don't stop generally for noise on that. I'll edit around it or I will ask John to circle back to it if I hear something that's like... That was a really good point, but there really was an airplane overhead because my audio girl and I, we connect just by vision. And Gail and I will look and she will either nod at me and then I know I don't have to take it over again. If she gives me the head shake, then in my head, I have to say, if I want that, I got to get it over. Are you on an ear prompter with John or do you have to, it's kind of on the next cut? Oh gosh, no. We are literally five feet from each other. So I can okay. hear everything normally, unless we're in a manufacturing plant. John's favorite thing to do is manufacturing, Pat. He loves to get someplace. <laughs> like stuff happening all over, and he wants to know how stuff is made. And he asks all the people working there, and he just talks to them and forgets the cameras there at all, which is why it's so fun to watch, because it would be what you would do if you went in there. Yeah, he's a very engaging host, mm -hmm. and he's a curious guy. He's a good storyteller, but I think primarily he understands his role and that he is the Sherpa guide to take us into this town yeah. and find the interesting stuff. I totally get that, yeah. We give him the interesting stuff because we don't go in unprepared. We go in with a schedule. It's a four-day shooting schedule, what we do. The first day is just me and my videographer. And we go all over town with our drone and our three different cameras and shoot the stuff that I need to paint the picture of the town. We call it coloring it. So we go out for the first day and we color the picture and we look for beautiful scenics and wonderful lighting on downtown buildings. And, and so that day is just he and I, and that's a great day because you literally are just not talking to anyone. <laughs> You are just shooting, which is so much easier to control. The next day, John and our audio tech come to town. And then we start shooting with him. And we try to get his stand-ups out of the way. So that takes the second day. And then we usually do an interview that day as well. So he moves between, I've memorized all this stuff and I just want to get all this out of my head. So he'll show up and he is chomping at the bit. Come on, come on, let's get this part done. I've got it memorized. <laughs> You're like, okay, except the light is wrong for this one right now. And he's like, too bad, let's do it anyway. So, you know, we pumped a ton. I mean, we're like, okay, that didn't work out really great here. Let's just go down the block. So uh, there's a lot of just producing and directing on the fly, which I love. Well, you're working with the elements, but at the same time, you know it's not a war zone. And what we're producing in this kind of television entertainment, right. you want to put the best conditions out, and your instinct tells you, okay, that didn't look so great or that didn't sound so great. Right. Let's do it again. Now, full disclosure to folks, John McGivern has been a guest on this show, mm -hmm. and he's somebody that I work with frequently. He is an extraordinary memorizer. I mean, he swallows up pages of material and delivers it in, in the most engaging way. Once he's not doing that, once he gets to ad lib and go off on his own or engage with that person, I think that's probably some of the fun of the storytelling 
is that now he has all of the elements, and I would advise this of any host, then it's the non-scripted moments where you're able to pull the personality and the background and some kind of quirky story out of them that nobody would have seen. Right. And if they weren't talking to him, right? That's the thing. They talk to him because he's like their friend and he's so non-threatening and he's really interesting and he's engaging. So they'll tell him things they shouldn't tell him. So <laughs> I have a lot of material to edit. And that's the other storytelling. John gets the stories out of the people and we'll shoot with them for you know maybe half an hour, maybe an hour, depending on what we go do. Then the next storytelling happens, and that happens back here where I work in the edit suite. I have an editor here, Jay Cedarholm, who is brilliant. He listens to every moment and then pulls, okay, this would be fun, and this is good, and this is intrinsic. We have to understand this, or we won't understand that. And we have seven featured storylines in each episode. So he has to do that for seven stories. And then we have six stand-ups. Then we have our open and our close. So we have a fixed number of elements that you know when you're getting kind of done, but they can be completely different. He might have talked to the baker for an hour and 15 minutes because he really loved the baker. He wanted to make the bread, but then he says, let's make the cookies. And I'm like, oh my God, let's make the cookies. We already made the bread. But we go do it because he's interested and the person is interested. But the storytelling is multifaceted. It isn't just what John gets. And unfortunately, we have to leave so much of it on the cutting room floor that is sad to me. It's sad, but it's also great. I, as a kid, was so frustrated by those English assignments. Where it's like, put this story in the right order and there would be different paragraphs. Yep. But that's what you're doing. Ultimately, yeah. your editor and you are very good at that kind of problem solving. And we do it on this podcast. Right. Like We're going to replace all the what we're saying with something more interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> but I'm saying it is interesting how important editing becomes yeah. in final product and how important it is that you edit appropriately mm -hmm. to keep a storyline because human beings tell sidebars yes. and they go on backstories and they do things and you go, well, could you stick to the point? And you know, the thing with our stories are, and I think a lot of shows do this, but it's in video, we have an additional opportunity. I can tell multiple stories at once with the same amount of time because what I'm showing you can be characteristic of what he's talking about or it could be a process that we're not even discussing, but you see how that's done? Your brain can absorb at least three storylines at once. And we very frequently do that in our segments because we have all that content. I love to show people what's going on John could be talking about the history of the business and I can be showing how you make those paper straws. Your brain gets all of that and that's why the show moves so quick. Yeah, it's very lush. All the B-roll that you're shooting in the city and all the beautiful shots in, let's say, a novel, the storyline would require you to stop and tell us about the setting. But you're able to do that with his voiceover over the top and you're able to cut to the quick exterior of the factory and the inside. Right, so you already know what it looks like. I don't have to describe it. That was our fun thing in season one or two of when we started this production, it was called Around the Corner with John McGivern. And I was at Milwaukee PBS at the time. And that's where we produced Around the Corner. And I had my editor at that point used to just go crazy because John would start out by standing in front of something and saying, I'm at the Museum of History in Oshkosh. And I could got to the point where I could hear her yelling in my ear, we can see it. You don't have to say it. <laughs> 
<laughs> now it's a rare day if John says, I'm standing in front of, because he can hear her yelling at him too. <laughs> yeah. Knowing about how to use visual storytelling is really important in a lot of writing. In screenplays, when people ask me to read their screenplay, I always say, write action. Tell me what the action is. Where are the people going? Don't say they're thinking about trying to pick up the gun. Okay, I can't see thinking. I can't see trying. Are they reaching for the gun and not able to get it? Don't write try. Take try out of your screenplay. There you go. That's very good advice. He's trying to find a way. Well, forget it. Just make him either jump off the cliff or try to start the car, but just show it. Just say the car won't start. That simple thing can make the difference of something moving like a railroad car down the track or whether it's somebody trying to describe the inner workings of the train. Well, that's something interesting you just said because I'm also really this lucky. I don't write any of that stuff down, Pat. I have no script, (laughs) which I love. You're a very educated producer and director. That's Pat's way of saying I'm old. I get it, Pat. Thank you. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) I I know. (laughs) Just take it as a note that you're wise. Okay. Just that's why the long beard. Maybe people can't see on this audio podcast that you're you're wizened. Yes, wizened. Oh my God. That's a good word. Okay. I'm wizened. All right. The wizened conductor is how we're going to call this episode. How many episodes of Around the Corner did you do? How many cities did you go to? Well, let me see. It's not quite as as many cities. I did 117 episodes of Around the Corner. And three of them were kind of history things. And one was a compilation. So I'm going to tell you, I probably went to 113 different communities. And that series was completely in Wisconsin. And every season we would start, okay, we're going to pick our cities. And people would say, oh my gosh, how can there be any place left to go in Wisconsin? I can't believe Because we never did one city twice. Never. And then how many of the Main Streets episodes have you done so far? So far, 38. Okay. So you're moving into 150 cities that you've covered, which is amazing. And also there's a good reason that you're winning Emmys for this work because it's ambitious programming for PBS. Thank you. When we started around the corner all those years ago, not because I had any kind of vision, but because I'm selfish enough to want to do what I want to do. And my host, John McGivert, we both said, okay, we're in a position where if we got to work and we work together, we will achieve our major goal in life, which is at least one out loud belly laugh every day at work. Who can say that? I will tell you that over the last 14 years, I'm I'm pretty much hitting that goal. So, but when we started the show all of those years ago, one of our goals was don't make this look like a PBS show. There is a method that is done over and over again. It's valid. I will tell you that it's the voiceover. We'll shoot the segments in the field and then you'll hear the voiceover. And then we'll go back to the host in the studio who will toss us to the next package. That is a valid method of production and one that I am not at all interested in. And as it turns out, one that John McGivern was not at all interested in. I much prefer to have other people tell this story. We don't write any voiceover, and I haven't for 14 years. Now, John has these little stand-ups, and then he makes it his own. But voiceover, like, I shot it, then you come back, and you look at your segment, and then you have to figure out how to bridge from one thing to the next. So you write the voiceover bridge between this and this. I'm not interested in doing that, and I just don't feel that that moves quickly enough. I give people too much credit because I don't give them time to, oh, now we're going to go next door. Just go next door. I don't even have to show you going. Just be there. 
we don't need time. We are so ready for what anybody is going to tell us. Our attention spans, I think the last data I read, have gone down 8.3 seconds for something. So we are going to move and we can tell a lot of stories in a short time. That's my goal. The human brain, when they see two things next to each other, they fill in the gap. You got it. Whether that's romantic, whether that's proximity, whether that's so many times, I think the most interesting movies we see are where something butts up against it where you go, oh, how do they get there? And then you quickly fill in the gap and you go, well, they must have taken the boat. Or do you care? I don't care how he got inside the factory from the front door. I don't need to see him go through the (laughs) lobby. I don't need any of that. So we cut time a lot like that. And it's one of my favorite things to make this show move very quickly. Well, you've reached a level, though, where you have a certain amount of independence and a certain amount Mm of auteur making of these things. But take me back to before that. What kind of work were you doing that led you to this where a point that you've reached so much autonomy? Before I went to PBS, I owned my own production company with my business partner. And my partner, Susan Borey, and I grew out of the world of corporate video production for a local production house here in Milwaukee. Every city has their headquarters here. So ours is Miller and Rockwell and Briggs and Harley Davidson and big corporate clients, Northwestern Mutual. And so you would do corporate videos for them. It could be an image piece. It could be an employee piece. We started our careers there. Then Susan and I started our own business because we could, and we really didn't want to work for anybody else. We just wanted to work ourselves. But then we ended up doing a lot of mentorship with kids. And we ended up finding funders who were interested in a certain field. I'll give you my best example. They built Miller Park here in Milwaukee. And while they were building Miller Park, all of the trades unions were on site doing their jobs. And at the time, we were mentoring a high school class, and I wanted to go back and work with the kids. So we talked the board, talked them, but sold them on the idea that we could do a video for the trades unions for high schoolers who may be considering the trades. And I used all the kids in the class for talent, and we had let them shoot camera. So it was a mentorship project where then we grew it into an opportunity for the trades unions to fund it and Miller Park to distribute it. And it went to all of the schools in Wisconsin. It was such a fun thing to do. That was maybe the first taste that I had of, hey, this is going to be what we want it to be and now what my client wants it to be. Once you get that, Pat, it's really hard to go back. You're like, oh my gosh, to make your own vision happen? Yeah, we were kind of hooked from there. So we did a number of projects like that. Then we worked on some documentaries for PBS. Once I understood how to get funding for a project that I was interested in, that was the key to opening the door to doing content that I wanted to do. And my business partner and I were so symbiotic together. We just did such great work together that the two of us could take on a project that would last six months. And not only could we live off of it, but we thrived off of it. And then we would market other things based on that. So we weren't a giant house. It was two of us. But we got attuned to doing what we liked to do. So fast forward, I unexpectedly had twins at age 40. That's a long story. (laughs) Then I stayed home for three years. But while I was at home, I kept my freelance connections up with PBS Milwaukee, who were the ones that we were distributing our documentaries through. I got a call from the manager there one day who said, hey, are you ready to come back to work? He said, I have an opening for a producer. They don't come up very often, Lois. I think you'd be awesome here. I said, no, thanks. I'm raising my babies. And then six months later, he called me up and said, okay, now would you be ready? (laughs) 
okay, well, you know what? I was because twins will suck the life. Yeah, they're on their own now. Six months, they're really taking care of everything themselves. <laughs> no, at that time, they were three, three and a half. So I had done my three years at home. And I will tell you, that is the hardest work I have ever done in my life. I did go to work for Milwaukee PBS. And I was the arts and culture producer, which meant that anything that they needed to get done landed on my desk. I worked in the opera. I did a children's opera. We've done symphonies. I was doing arts programming with various producers around town. And the first job that I had there was I was the producer of the circus parade. Milwaukee had something called the Great Circus Parade. It ran down our streets since probably the 50s, I would say. And then it kind of took some hiatus. In 2009, it ran down the streets of Milwaukee for the last time. And Milwaukee PBS covered it, and I was the producer of that. And I worked with a gentleman named John McGivern on that parade. He was a gentleman back then? Well, I didn't know him yet, Pat. <laughs> I see. <laughs> But I got to know him and he was the guy on the street and we just had a blast. We had not only had fun working together, but I was like, okay, he makes my job easier. He knows what he's doing. He knows where the camera is. He understands light. He gets what his role is. When you find something like that, I was like, beside the fact that I already knew we were going to be friends forever because we just hit it off. You know, sometimes you meet those people and you're like, oh, well, we're probably going to be friends forever. So what if we work together? And I discovered then that if I could have John be the front runner in a show, my audience already kind of knew him. It still took me probably six months to sell it in to Wonky PBS to say to them, this is a series we need to do. We had different names for it. Finally landed on Around the Corner with John McGivern. And I was in. I was in finally doing a show that John and I created it together. Like, what's this going to look like? And then we went to the staff at Wonky PBS and the shooter and the audio. Everybody there owned the show. It wasn't my show and it wasn't John's show. It became this incredible collaboration where people at the station worked on Around the Corner. And it was kind of magic there for a lot of years. And I know we're coming back around to being back on Milwaukee PBS with the Main Street show. So that'll be an exciting addition to the community because it's been running around other parts of the country, other states and so forth. And in Wisconsin, um, PBS Wisconsin distributes for us. There's two PBS stations in Wisconsin. One is out of Madison, that's called PBS Wisconsin, and one is out of Milwaukee. And you need both if you want the full state coverage. So last year, PBS Wisconsin distributed us just not to Milwaukee yet. They weren't ready to get on board with it, but it did go to Chicago and Minneapolis and Indianapolis and Iowa and all over. So coming up to season three, we will be back on Milwaukee PBS, who I think our viewers are going to be very happy to see John back where he belongs. It's awesome. He is a civic treasure in Milwaukee. And I've had the pleasure of doing a lot of live theatrical events with him. And I know that the two of you sometimes preview these programs at those performing arts centers. You might yeah. put a screen up and talk a little bit to them and then show the episode. And that must be very rewarding to hear the community in a, in a group situation celebrate their own town. Oh, it's it's really energizing too. Not only is it validating because let's face it, they clap and we always get up and I always say, does this really capture your town? And when they say yes, you really get a sense of, okay, great. We hit it. I'm so happy that we were able to do something that they enjoy. 
it's kind of your only validation that you get face to face. You know, we have a lot of social media presence. So you get comments on Facebook, which are wonderful, and on Instagram and on the podcasts and all that stuff. And that's all great. There's nothing like those seeing an audience. You can see the look on their face when they laugh at the right time when you thought it was funny. And then you realize you weren't the only ones that thought it was funny. Somebody else thinks it's funny. Yay. That's a really good feeling. But a very rare opportunity, to be honest, with television, because yeah. most television is in a time capsule and you put it out for something that airs weeks from now or months from now where a person watches it in their own home and you never hear the feedback. Now, I know from being a stand-up comic, the immediate feedback of being on stage makes you decide what the next moment's about. And because John is also a very good comic, I think that these community previews allow you and he to engage with them. But it is a pretty rare thing to watch a TV audience watch TV. <laughs> and I think we're pretty lucky to be able to do it. But we started this years ago literally as a way to say thank you to the community because nobody pays to get on our show. That's one of the methods we love. This isn't a pay-for-play model where if a community has money, they can get on your show. Nobody gets paid for doing this. So if those people that we interviewed didn't say yes to us, we don't have a show. So when we first started this, we were like, we need to thank them all. How should we thank them all? Well, let's have a party where they're the stars. So that's really what those previews grew out of. And they, they grew from 40 people our first season to, you know, 1,200 by the time Around the Corner was in its ninth season. So, And what an opportunity, as you said, for a creative to get that instant feedback. I'm not a stand-up comic, so I don't get on stage and hear that to be able to sit in the room and watch people watch our work. It's rare and it's really, I love it. In the upcoming season, is there a city that you chose that's on your wish list that you're covering in the next 10 or 12 episodes? Oh yeah, so so incredibly selfish. Waukesha, Wisconsin. <laughs> I live in Milwaukee. The show comes out of Milwaukee and Waukesha is our next door neighbor. And you know we travel all summer, Pat. We travel through... This is the way we say we go 300 miles from John's front door. He lives in downtown Milwaukee. So we'll go 300 miles when you can not have to stay in a hotel overnight. Oh, yeah, I'm winning then. And it's a community I know. That was my pick this year. I'm lucky because as the executive producer in our world is very different than it is in film world and in screenplays and, and all that. The executive producer here really is the one that's doing the work. And I get to work with all my other content producers. I do have final say on, yeah, we're going to go there. Or no, we're not. But I trust them. If they're doing their research and they say, you know what, we need to go to Michigan City, Indiana this year, then we go. And we just got back from Marquette, Michigan. Have you ever been way up there, Pat? I have. Yeah, the UP, right? Yeah. And on the very top of the UP, I think like you can see Canada from there. It's beautiful. Beautiful weather, like it was hot down here. It was lovely up there. And the Lake Superior really is different than Lake Michigan. So I love being able to show all of these different places because they kind of really do feel different. And and that's our goal is on television is to get the audience to feel, feel them. You don't just watch them. You don't just entertain by them. You got to be able to feel what that community is like. The audience is in general as an older audience. So you're actually bringing something into their home 
that they can't always get to go to. These travel things are a little bit of a time travel for some of the viewers. Yeah, we are lucky though that we do have an audience that does travel. The method of 300 miles means that you can get in your car, especially post pandemic. I think that's a lot of people that, yes, they wanna travel, but they may not be ready for the airplanes or they just don't want to. You can get in your car and drive for three and a half hours and be someplace that you didn't know existed and that looked really cool on this show that you saw. We find that people do it, but they actually go, which is really gratifying too. Well, and if your researchers are doing a good job, they are showing you what you can do when you're there or what you can visit, what's worth touring. I'm, as a touring performer, <laughs> there are so many times where I say to my production manager, leave a day, we're going to the Crayola factory. Yeah. We went to the Parker Brothers factory in Massachusetts and whatever it was we saw, they took us into an empty room and they said, and before we open the door, you're going to know what we used to make in here 15 years ago. And they opened this door and it smelled like Play-Doh. <laughs> the oil of the Play-Doh was still in the floors and the walls. Wow. And they don't make it there anymore. <laughs> but they keep it because they can't get rid of the smell. And if they do anything else in that room, it would smell like Play-Doh. But we watched the twister tarps coming off the line and being folded up and put in the boxes. We watched the Monopoly money being stacked up and put in the box. And I thought, I played with all this stuff as a kid. And it was, it was really a great nostalgic flashback. Yeah. I think, too, if you watch these shows and you watch somebody else go do that, you're more likely to do it. Because you might say to yourself, the Spam Museum in Austin. But when you see the inside of it toured around with somebody that you like and that you think, oh, John had a good time there, I'll probably have a good time there. You're more likely to go. It's a good tourism thing, but it's also really meant to just uplift people. It's entertaining. After half an hour of watching our show, you should have a smile on your face. And you should say to yourself at least once, huh, I didn't know that. I want it to be a water cooler show that the next morning people are saying, did you know what I heard John McGivern say last night? He said that Abraham Lincoln lived in this house for only this many years, you know, whatever it is where we've been. I love it when people are like, God, I did not know that. Well, I think hearing you talk about it and knowing what you and John are making, the other idea probably everyone gets is, I want a job where I get to travel and eat and pick what I want to talk about. Well, that's what seems like every show now is, is that when people pitch it, it's a way for them to get out of working and to start traveling and having fun. <laughs> Why are you telling everybody my secrets? People saw it in Rick Steves' travel show, going to Italy or Stanley Tucci cooking. Yeah. And they go, I'm pretty good at crafts. Maybe I could have a show yeah. where I go to towns and collect the stuff I like to collect. Oh, completely. And you know, that's part of the beauty of people saying, oh God, I want to do that. Because it looks really easy, doesn't it? It looks like it just happens. So oh, he just walks around town, it just happens. So it's really kind of satisfying because we often say that, just go make your own, for just one episode, go do it. <laughs> right, right. Have you ever seen uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Drinking Coffee? Oh, yeah. These were three things Jerry always liked. It, it was the one thing that he would say, oh, I like coffee. I like having conversations with comedians and I love cars. It's exactly what it promises to be. And he's doing what he wants to do. It's gotten even better and better because it's shot very beautifully. But coming off of a big TV series and, and the B movie, the guy doesn't want to do anything that he doesn't want to do. And he didn't expect it to necessarily be this big following. It was just I only want to do these three things and so be it. But ultimately, I think he proved to the web world and then subsequently Netflix and everyone else 
that everybody who followed uh, Jay Leno's Garage and all the other, they go, hey, I like cars. Hey, I like this thing. Right? So everything's a version of programming your own self to be entertained by your own amusement. You just got to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And you did say one really important thing earlier. I will reiterate. How does it get funded? That's it. Everything comes down to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, if you were advising a young producer or director mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the toolkit they needed to do, aside from dreaming up ways to fund, which I think probably has to do with both your ability to communicate a pitch and a network to the people who have the money, what would you tell these folks to do if they were chasing a dream like yours? Um, you know, I probably would tell them they need to do a lot of other stuff first. And it's not because they're not good. It's because you need to be that broad. You need to understand the technical side. So go shoot some stuff. Cut some audio so you understand what it is that makes good audio. You need to broaden out that experience. You're not going to be a good director if you don't know what everybody else has to do when you tell them something. So my advice is jump into all of the things Find the thing you like best and go at it from that direction. And if you're not good at something, find someone who is. Align with somebody who is good at that. Fundraising is the worst. It is hard. <laughs> some people have a knack and some people don't. Many creatives don't. We don't want to raise the money. We don't like to go do that. You're going to have to find somebody who is that because all those parts have to come together. And fundraising is sales. People don't know that everything is sales yeah and i don't necessarily mean in sales like an insurance salesman or a car salesman but ultimately it's about convincing folks to be in alignment with something whether that's a financial investment or support or in a relationship or any number of things right. and i don't think you should sell things that you're not passionate about or that you don't care about but find the thing that you really love and don't think of it as sales think of it as offering something to somebody that solves their problem Exactly. I, I couldn't have put that any better, Pat. And I tell John McGivern this all the time. John is great in a meeting, but he never will ask for that meeting. And I always say to him, you know what? Me and you believe in this show more than anyone. It's simple to talk about it. If you believe in your mission, which is to create goodwill and to create a sense of community in our case, that's not hard to talk about because I do believe there's value in that, especially where we live now with all the division and everything. What we do is valuable. And if you believe it, all you have to do is tell them you can't make them believe it. But if they know you do, you're way better on much bigger chance of success. Yeah. Well, Lois Bauer, I appreciate your uh, insights and inspiration and sharing a little bit about the PBS model and specifically the idea of a travel show on location with talent and found stories that you background searched. And it's really an eye opener, I think, for some people who don't know how this gets made. If folks want to see your show, they can go to MainStreets.tv and they can get caught up on the new seasons of what's coming out there. Absolutely. You can also look for it on Facebook, Instagram. You know, just go to John McGivern's Main Streets. You'll find us. I'll see you on Main Street, Pat. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's 
or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping